Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 42. Next up is going to be the final trade offer game, which shall henceforth be referred to as Ultimatum Game for brevity. One person picks a split from 0-12 to 12. 0. The other person has to assent to it, or both get nothing. What do the Calaxians make of this, one wonders. It's the Rovagog situation, says Gregoria, which you solve with an oath, if you're a god or a king or it's very important. Note to self, which is coming too late to do any good, figure out why Keltham shouldn't just ask them all for oaths, because if he does, that everything's going to fall apart, or everyone be forsworn by the end of the day. And which none of you have the training to do, she says, which is false, because they were just about to be deployed to the world wound, but she's pretty sure it is worth lying about. I wouldn't have expected anyone here to know how oaths work, now that I think back on it using my current knowledge. That takes law well beyond the level of the stuff I was just teaching you, along that same pathway, and I would have expected it to be straight up too lawful for Galarian period. Wait, what does the Taldane word oath mean to you? I know what it translates into in baseline, but that may be deceptive. No one else answers, probably because she's now established that they're lying and so they don't know how much lying they're doing. She isn't sure either. The Taldane books did mention people taking and occasionally breaking oaths of fealty, but Taldor's not a lawful country. Oh, there is an angle on making Keltham not want to insist. It is when you swear by your god to make a commitment in the way that gods make them, where you cannot be the sort of person who'd break them, and if you do break them, you've betrayed law enough, you lose your afterlife and your soul goes to Abaddon and gets eaten, with some caveats. Okay, in retrospect, the situation where he was doubting her intentions right after they met, where the alien with vital knowledge for her entire world expressed doubt about a statement she'd already made and knew to have been honest, might very well, for all she knew, have been that urgent. But flaming shit, Carissa. What even is the point of doing that if the alien doesn't know that's how it works? She didn't know he didn't know that was how it worked. Though, the absence of gods and afterlives should have been a hint. Maybe she just didn't think of that fast enough. Time pressure. I see, Keltham says, rather shakily. Well, no gods or afterlives in Dathilan, so we try to understand enough law that we're governed by the same sort of law that governs gods directly, which Dathilani short of high-ranked keepers can't actually do. But even at levels short of that, there's a shadow of the law whose connection to us shatters a little more each time it's betrayed. Not just for us, but all across everywhere governed by math, which is understood by society to be a serious affair. When people write novels about aliens attacking Dathilan and trying to kill all humans everywhere, the most common rationale for why they do that is that they want our resources and don't otherwise care who's using them. But if you want the aliens to have a sympathetic reason, the most common reason is that they're worried a human might break an oath again at some point, or spawn the kind of society that betrays the alien hyper-civilization in the future. Humans on Galarian totally do break oaths, but the Chelish students think that anyone who wants to murder them all about it is pretty justified. Though Asmodeus would probably collaborate with that entity on instead making them all stop by enslaving them. I... 
Am guessing theological education doesn't mostly get into the details of this if you're training to be a combat wizard, but I think that the thing you just said is also a shadow of why Asmodeus was angry when humans were given free will. Not quite valid under my own utility function, but understandable for Asmodeus, yeah. Anyways, the ultimatum game is the shadow of a situation that isn't rare enough in real life that you could afford to deal with it using solutions that require gods, kings, and risking your literal actual existence. What other solutions can you come up with? I mean, you can just have a reputation for turning down trades where you don't get much, Meritzel says. Or if you expect to be deciding the split about as often as vetoing it, you can try to specifically play nice with people who play nice with you. Well, let's run a trial then, and see who can end up with the most hypothetical jelly chips after five rounds, everyone paired up at random in each round, all results of previous rounds public. That's not the same instruction or incentive structure that Dathalani kids get. Their instructions are to seek more jelly chips, not the most jelly chips. But frankly, I'm curious what you peculiar aliens do if you get that instruction instead. The students offer and accept 50. 50 splits all around. Keltham pauses them after round one. Nobody can end up with the most chips if you all do that, Keltham observes. Don't get me wrong, that's fine for the real-life situation, and it's what Dathalani kids do with the usual instructions. But you can't play to get the most chips that way. If I already had money, I'd offer an actual gold piece, or fraction of one, depending on how many I had, to the winner. I'm not sure there's a strategy for ending up with the most beyond hoping other people fireball each other, says Meritzel. Or offering out-of-context rewards for cooperation, but I assume we're not supposed to do that either. Well. I didn't tell you that you couldn't. The less a game is winnable by ordinary means, the more it's implied that maybe you're expected to go outside it. Why didn't anyone try offering a seven? Five split. If you accept that, then you definitely lose the overall game. You're going to end up with a lower score than other people. And since you've lost anyway, you might as well burn them to the ground so they know not to mess with you. I see. I suppose the same would have applied to announcing that you wouldn't accept any splits less than five. Seven? Anyways, among the tactics I'd try in that situation is offering to generate a random number and split eleven. One or one-eleven based on that. In which case, we'd each have a fifty percent chance of winning the whole game. If we did it on the last round, and nobody else had caught on earlier. No one would believe you that you really did that, though? Ah. Clarification. It's not assumed in these games that you're supposed to roleplay being not trustworthy, unless you've got a card from the older kids telling you to do that, but at least at the age this game is usually played, they'd always tell you in advance if cards like that might be handed out. I didn't tell Meritzel to cheat with the card I gave her, just for her to try to end up with more jelly chips. Though in this situation, if it's the last round, there's not much of a loss from carrying out your part. If you both witness the randomness generation, and it says you get the lower side of the split, failing to follow through at that point just causes nobody, including you, to be the winner. The game instructions don't say that you do any worse by scoring lower than average. You either win or don't win. It's a bargain where you don't actually lose anything from following through, even if you lost, which is part of the reason I'd expect it to work, even in a lower trust situation. Oh, you mean if you use something publicly observable to decide which of you gets the split? Yeah, my... 
time-telling device that attaches to my wrist, would have done it, but that didn't follow me here. Anything with a precise physical symmetry will do, though. Like if it's got two identical sides, you can toss it upwards while spinning it, and you can both see which side lands facing upward. Totally random question I keep forgetting to ask. How do you tell the time around here? Wizards usually have mechanical timepieces because you want to know exactly how long until your spell runs out. Other people just go off the sun, mostly. Someone produces a pocket watch to show Keltham. Yeah, I kind of need one of those. We'll talk to requisitions about it, I guess. Anyways, the next step in the economics game would be one I don't see a simple way to play here. It involves a puzzle station that takes two players cooperating to win, and the two sides of the game vary independently in how much effort it takes to control that side of it. Once the puzzle is sufficiently solved, one player locks in a split from 0 to 12. The other player has to decide whether to accept that split, and the game station spits out jelly chips, if they do. The idea being, this is modeling two people working on a task together, only they're not putting in the same amount of effort. It's not easy to see from inspection exactly how much work the other player is doing. And then one of the players has to decide how to split the rewards, afterwards, and the other player has to decide whether to accept that, or if they both get nothing. What would you do, in that situation? What do you think we did in Dathilan, as kids? I don't see how that game is any different than this one. Unless you mean there's not the reputational element. You don't have an intuition that, in a game like that, the person who worked harder should get more jelly chips. Students glance at each other confusedly. Carissa has literally no idea how Taldane's students would answer that question, so they'll just have to answer as themselves. I mean, if it's a really atrocious amount of work and they don't do what they're supposed to in school just because they want to grow stronger, maybe they'll only be willing to do it if they're promised a certain number of jelly chips in return. Do you have an intuition that in real life, if you cast a spell that was really difficult and exhausting to set up that morning, you'd want to charge more gold pieces for doing that? I mean, I'm going to charge as much as I can for any spell, right? If a spell is laborious, then probably it's also laborious for other wizards. So I can expect that fewer of them prepared it and that I can get away with higher prices. But if I try that and I'm wrong, then I'll go on charging whatever price it sells at, or I'll stop doing it if it's not worth it at the price people want to pay me for it. Why are they so inconsistently economics? Suppose you're living in a multifamily home, and there's this one big chore that nobody particularly wants to do, so everybody writes down their price for doing the chore, and everyone else pays whoever wrote down the lowest price to do it. There's no market in doing the chore. It's a one-time thing that's never going to happen again. You'd still write down a higher price for a chore you expected to need to spend more effort doing. For unclear reasons, this example fails to land. Suppose there's one job that's really easy and pays 1,000 gold pieces a year, and there's one job that's really difficult and exhausting and pays 1,003 gold pieces per year. You'd probably take the first job, even though the market rate for it is lower, because the second job isn't worth enough more to make up for the additional effort you have to put in. Yep, okay, they agree with that. If you've got two wizards fighting two monsters to get to a pile of gold coins they're guarding, Keltham's rapid skimming has picked up that this is a thing. Though why is a much deeper and darker and more confusing question. And one monster turns out to be a much tougher fight than the other. Would the wizard who fought the tougher monster expect more than exactly half of the gold coins? Depends on the contract they had going in. Okay, 
and if a contract didn't just say to divide the coins evenly, and the two wizards otherwise had equal job experience, what would the contract say? Most of these students have not actually met any adventurers. Usually, it'd say an even split, or an even split with the option to take it to arbitration if one party feels the other was shirking, or an uneven split because one put up the money for the expedition, or had the tip on the password to the door, or had the teleport location or something. So, the solution that Dathalani children immediately invent is both kids say on a scale from 0 to 12 how hard they thought they had to work, and then the jelly chips get divided in proportion to that. I mean, that wouldn't reliably work at higher stakes, except between lovers or co-founders, and if you're doing something with a hundred people, you need a more objective and third-party way to measure efforts. But, if two people were just tidying a friend's house for money, or some such, saying intuitively how much effort you put in, and dividing the payment accordingly, would be very ordinary? Do you have anything like that anywhere? Obviously, everyone would lie, to themselves if necessary, so it's an incredibly stupid system? She doesn't say that. You don't want to reward effort, says Meritzel. You want to reward results. If two people cleaned the same amount and one found it easy and one found it hard, you don't want to give the one who found it hard compensation for their finding it hard. You might compensate them for the work, but not for the effortfulness, unless you're their teacher or something and trying to build their character for some reason. That works great. And we'd do that as a matter of course. Anytime we had a reliable way of measuring how much work got done, of how much intrinsic difficulty. When you're tidying a house, you can't measure area tidied to determine work done. It takes more effort to tidy a kitchen than a bedroom, and not in any standard way. If two people are going in without any prior reason to believe one of them is more efficient than the other, how hard they worked is an obvious, if imperfect, proxy for how difficult the job actually was. I keep thinking that maybe the answer is that Galarian is a lower-trust society than Dathilan, and people are too scared the other person will lie about how hard the job was, or how good they are at it. Which, I mean, you'd almost have to be lower-trust, given everything. But that doesn't answer why lovers or co-founders or even just very good friends would never make an arrangement like that. I mean, says Gregoria, they might. But you're not supposed to have lovers or co-founders in school, and... You don't really have side jobs, so we wouldn't know, even if that's how some people do things privately. Right. Well, Dathalani kids invent the zero, 12 scale and divide rewards proportionally to how hard they thought they worked, and you that succeeds for them. Their spoken intuitive estimates are usually pretty close to the actual difficulty calibrations on the machines. You have to hand out concealed cards, telling some of the kids to be dishonest in their work estimates, if you want to break that up. It sounds like Cheliacs might need to do other training differently, earlier in the sequence than this, if they want to get that same result with kids. I think so. Keltham describes the sad situation which eventuates when you do hand out dishonesty cards to kids. They work hard, propose splits that they guess are fair, not being able to trust the other person, and then sometimes those splits get rejected. The kids get angry. There is shouting. They get sent home for the day without having a solution shown to them, because it's good for them to sometimes dwell with problems that don't get solved immediately. He doesn't tell them about younger Keltham's emotional difficulties with being asked to act out a dishonesty card. He has a sense that Chalaxians would have trouble relating, for some reason. Maybe they'd say that even at age seven you should be able to understand that the game isn't real and just do what the card says. If Keltham has understood correctly, 
Cheliax considers the obvious game solution to be even splits of jelly chips, irrespective of work difficulty, which is repeatedly randomly unfair and hence asymptotically fair. Going into any one game, you are equally likely to get faced with a harder or an easier task for your fixed payment, and if you repeat that often enough, the expected unfairness as a fraction of all payments will drop as the square root of the number of repetitions. It's not actually too bad, as solutions go. Still, if Cheliax already has a better solution to the Dathilani game, or to the real-world situation that it stands for, Keltham stands ready to hear it. Nope, that's Cheliax's solution. Keltham presents the standard solution, in Dathilan, to the ultimatum game. If they offer you six, six, except with probability 100%. If they offer you seven, five, except with probability slightly less than six, seven. If they offer you eight, four, except with probability slightly less, less than six, eight. Does anyone want to try and guess the reasoning behind that solution in advance of it being stated? I see why it creates good incentives for the person who is deciding splits. Meritsil says. I don't see why the person deciding whether to accept splits or not has any incentive to do it if they can't establish a reputation for it. And it's hard to establish a reputation for doing something sometimes. Well, reputation-wise, it's definitely easier to have a reputation for doing something if everyone in your entire civilization got trained to do it at age seven or eight. I see why you'd want to require everyone to do it. Yeah. It'd be hard to catch them fudging if we're talking about random peasants, but... Maybe that still keeps the incentives reasonable. I think this is a place where I have the same reaction you had to burning down schools. People don't need to be required to behave like that to be accepted for residency in a city. It's just in their own interest to behave that way. Nobody wants to get a reputation as that weird person who accepts eleven. One splits and is very easy to take advantage of. At least nobody I know wanted it. Limiar doesn't count. He was totally trolling. The thing I'd expect people to be tempted to do, especially in a big city where they don't have much individual reputation, is make a show of using the randomization but take the split 10% more of the time, says Meritzel. So you get a bit more money, but it's not obvious you're doing something exploitable, which means it isn't exploitable. But obviously it's bad for everyone if everyone can predict that lots of people will do that. So we will be better served if the crown prohibits that. Suppose I put to you, Two gods interacting in the ultimatum game would use the pattern I just showed you, even if they had no reputations and would never meet again. Yes, of course. Civilization in Dathilan usually feels annoyed with itself when it can't manage to do as well as gods. Sometimes, to be clear, that annoyance is more productive than at other times, but the point is, we'll poke at the problem and prod at it, looking for ways not to be perfect, but not to do that much worse than gods. If you get to the point in major negotiations where somebody says, with a million labor hours at stake, if that's your final offer, I accept it with probability 25%, they'll generate random numbers about it in a clearly visible and verifiable way. Most Athilani wouldn't fake the results, but why trust when it's so easy to verify? The problem you've presented isn't impossible, after all, for non-gods to solve, if they say to themselves, wait, we're doing worse than gods here, is there any way to try not that? Meritzel looks, slightly like she's having a religious experience for a second before she snaps out of it. All right, she says quietly. 
Once you've arrived at a notion of a fair price in some one-time trading situation where the seller sets a price and the buyer decides whether to accept, the seller doesn't have an incentive to say the fair price is higher than that. The buyer will accept with a lower probability that cancels out some of the seller's expected gains from trade. The buyer also doesn't have an incentive to claim the fair price is lower than they think it really is. The seller won't actually adjust their price if they think a lower price is unfair, and the buyer will have to follow through by accepting with a lower probability, which destroys a big chunk of their own expected gains from trade and doesn't get them a different price, even if the random number says to accept. The initial notion of a fair price has to come from somewhere, from the part of yourself that initially suggested six, six, in the ultimatum game, which reflects a bit of law I'll describe later. But once you get that notion of fairness from somewhere, and put a system like this around it, no seller has an incentive to claim an unfairly high fair price, and no buyer has an incentive to claim an unfairly low fair price. And if they happen to honestly disagree about that anyways, in some ambiguous situation, they'll still complete the transaction with very high probability, so long as they only disagree a little. That, roughly, is how bargaining works in Death Ilan over one-time trades. If somebody offers a price, the other side thinks unreasonable, the other side says, that strikes us as an unfair division of gains, even if mutually beneficial as such. But if you made that your final offer, we'd generate a visible random number and accept with 10% probability. And then, the price-setting side can potentially offer further arguments about why the trade is more valuable than it looks, or make a better offer, or accept that low probability. The bargaining process Carissa described earlier, for selling my shirt, sounded like people were probably trying to sort of flail at that underlying structure by acting like they might be very unlikely to take an offer, or be moderately likely to take an offer, as they got closer to an agreeable price. But with a lot more weirdness acting, in baseline we'd say LARPing. Maybe because they think they have to pretend a lowball offer isn't mutually beneficial at all, in order to justify rejecting it, and also with some incentives to be misleading, because the underlying signals aren't as precise and legible as saying 4-10%. And there's an incentive to exaggerate. But then the other side knows you're probably exaggerating, so you exaggerate even more, and you get people saying these exaggerated statements that both sides know aren't true but there's uncertainty about how much the speaking side thinks they're really exaggerated, and modulating that uncertainty ends up being the medium of communication. At least, that was my attempt to decode what Carissa described. That sounds right. If I imagine trying to negotiate a 256-page merger between two large companies, with 10-24 clauses, I can't actually see how the Galarian method would scale if you don't know about explicit acceptance probabilities. Every time you wanted to negotiate one clause, you'd need to be ready to walk away otherwise, staking 100% of the success probability because otherwise they don't have any incentive to give in. But there's no way that would scale across 10-24 clauses without triggering once. Maybe the walkaway claims are mostly bluffs. Wow, what a concept to have a single-syllable word for. But the other side isn't sure you're bluffing each time they call it, does Galarian just not do large, complicated contracts by Dathilani standards, or... I... I don't think you could have a contract with that many clauses. No. The World Wound Treaty has five, 
Wars are sometimes settled with lots of terms, but generally only if one side gets to impose them and doesn't have to negotiate them. Yeah, we go higher than five. And there's reasons we do that, because we're not fans of complexity that can be eliminated without cost. So it's not of zero economic importance to have contract negotiations that scale better. Subject of potential interest to Asmadius specifically, or am I misreading the part where he's a god of contracts? Definitely of interest to Asmodeus, Meritzel says. Soul contracts have a lot of terms, and maybe Asmodeus is secretly annoyed that Chelish people don't negotiate them more, but, you know, the standard works, and devils can run rings around you, so it's stupid to, really. You couldn't have covered this topic fucking yesterday? Asmodea realizes her hand is clenched into a white fist and quickly relaxes it before anybody sees. But with the connection to compacts finally spelled out, she can now see how, even if she wouldn't plausibly have suicided and gone to hell directly, she could have sworn to do that with a probability, inconvenienced them with some probability, and had any negotiating leverage at all. Too late. Why, it is always, always, too late for everything. Keltham goes on to cheerfully describe how the Dathalani children returned the next day and told of the solution to the ultimatum bargaining game and the concept of fairness now blitz through the previous emotional difficulties of the uncertain labor difficulty game. No more anger and shouting. Yes, sometimes somebody says your offer isn't fair, and you say it is fair, and they generate a random number, and the random number says that neither of you get anything. And that is a little sad but you know that they didn't claim that unfairness in order to try and profit at your expense. You know the incentives weren't like that for them. And they know you didn't state your offer in order to try and profit at their expense. They know the incentives aren't like that for you. You know they know you don't have the incentive to cheat. So you know that when they state a higher price than you think is fair and end up rejecting your offer... They weren't trying to punish you for trying to cheat with a lower price. You can see how, if you kept on playing this game for a bit, pretty soon both sides would learn to converge on a similar concept of fairness, and fewer offers would get rejected. Does this actually outperform continuing to split evenly, though? Since sometimes offers get rejected, I guess continuing to split evenly doesn't appropriately train skill in. Having a shared concept of how labor translates to offer distribution? And it's good for people if the whole society has a shared notion of that. What goes wrong if the whole society's shared notion is, in fact, effort doesn't matter only outputs? Well, there's two components, I think, to my answer to that. The first answer is that outputs aren't always legible, and then you have to appropriately incentivize people's fairness on valuing the outputs. In the version of the training game that the kids got, how much effort they had to put in wasn't fully legible, but the outcome of the game being won was visible and unmistakable. But suppose somebody's making a shoe. How good of a shoe is it exactly? Maybe you could pay a trained third-party shoe evaluator to come in and say exactly what they thought it would be worth. But measuring your output objectively, like that is expensive. What we have instead is the partially legible output of a shoe, where the quality of shoe parts, or the evenness of the make, or whatever it is that people value in Galarian shoes, might not be clear and objective to the point where the shoemaker and shoe buyer couldn't possibly disagree on it. So then they need to both reason, in a way that incentivizes fairness from the other, without everything shattering with probability one in the presence of a small disagreement. 
like they're already doing when they barter over the shoe but properly. That makes sense. The second component is something where I feel more like I know what my teachers would say than like I really know the answer. These, of course, are vastly different internal subjective sensations that no Dathilani would confuse. What I think they'd say is that the amount of human interaction and endeavor where we mutually benefit one another, in a way that we negotiate explicitly, where we could possibly pay to have a third party evaluate the outputs, is the tip of an ice flow. You don't have much ice here. Is the thin tip of a pyramid, whose much larger base is all the places where people cooperate with each other, without explicitly negotiating a price in money. Can I arrive a little late to our meeting? Oh, sure, they say. Somewhere in the back of their mind, you expended a tiny bit of your social currency with them, and they now think you owe them a tiny bit of debt, or cancel a tiny bit of debt they used to consider themselves to owe you. And you'll also keep track of how much you fairly owe one another in implicit favors like that. And if the two of you disagree on that a little, it should only cause a breakup with very small probability. But if the divergence gets wider, maybe the two of you don't want to deal with each other anymore. When you don't even stop to negotiate and no money changes hands, matters are in a much less legible place still, and you're relying to an accordingly greater degree on people being implicitly fair in how they reward effort or output, which means that the surrounding structure which incentivizes that implicit fairness matters even more. I'm sort of skeptical about to what degree you really need all those implicit exchanges, and couldn't maybe just pass small bits of money back and forth more often, like maybe in the world made of Kelthams they just do that. But also I've never tried it, so maybe my imaginary teachers are right in what I imagine them saying, that it wouldn't work, or it would just be more inconvenient without helping much. Maybe all of this is hacked together because you can't just light people on fire a bit when they deserve it. She should not discard any pieces until she's totally sure she understands how they function, though. So, in the example with your shirt, says Marixel, the other person just says out loud, I can make 10 million gold pieces with that shirt. And you just say out loud, I value it 1 million gold pieces. And then they do some math and figure you'll accept a trade of 5.5 million or trades of less with less probability. But what stops them from saying in the first place, I can make 5 million gold pieces with that shirt when they can make 10? At this point, we're just assuming that you have any guess about what it's worth to them. Ah, but before I move on along the path, it seems prudent to include any warnings about stuff they warned us hard about, so... Civilization emphasizes really hard to kids at this point that, when you reject a 7-5 split with probability, T.6-7, you're not trying to spitefully punish the person, just make sure that their incentive curve slopes slightly downward as it moves away from what you think is fair. If you were trying to spite them in accordance with base instinct, you'd reject with probability a bit greater than five-sevenths, so that they lost almost as much as they tried to gain at your expense. Even spiteful entities, obviously, will still subtract Epsilon from their spiteful punishments to avoid the possibility of infinite resonating spite fights that even they don't want. Keltham has no particular reason to think Chalaxians are likely to make that particular error, but Dathilan emphasizes it hard to children, so it's probably important or a plausible error that somebody might otherwise make. Because there's no benefit in spitefully punishing shoesellers or fellow students for wanting to trade with you? What would the benefit be? 
I think the point of the warnings is that there's this thing built into human nature where our ancient ancestors mated and reproduced under conditions where people hitting each other and hitting back was much more of an equilibrium, and now we have instincts that are about that. But incentivizing fair strategies in the ultimatum game is not about that. It is a different structure that reflects a different bit of math than the non-ideal pseudo-equilibrium bit of math that got incarnated into hitting people back when they hit you. But, but it involves somebody else doing something you think is unfair, and then you make sure you do something that causes them to lose some expected value, even if that thing is just not trading with them. So it's the sort of thing that could map onto the hitting back instinct if you weren't specifically warned not to map it onto the hitting back instinct. Imagine that room full of children if you told them that, any time somebody made them an unfair offer and tried to cheat them, they ought to hit back in a way that made sure the person lost even more value than they tried to steal, to teach them a lesson, no matter how much more that cost their own position and expected value. Those kids wouldn't grow up to be Dothilan's civilization. Possibly they wouldn't grow up to be any civilization at all. The room full of chelish students nod seriously. The children would try to hit someone, and that someone would cave their skulls in, and that'd be a waste of a lot of state resources educating those children. This is only true if you have a very limited conception of hitting back, Carissa thinks. She isn't sure, not yet, but it really does feel like there's a way to lock an additional piece on, a way that you can get even cleaner and higher-performing results with fewer deals walked away from, less value left on the table. If you're not good and unwilling to do anything that's punishment— if you think you have some duty to keep people in the game when in reality they were born into the game and the only way out of it is their utter destruction. The whole point of pain, possibly not the whole point of pain but a lot of it, is that it's a deterrent that can be delivered without destroying any value at all. Dathilan doesn't have one of those, so all the rules have to assume that there isn't one. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.